In this new business environment, high-growth companies are constantly adapting. And in order to adapt, scale, and grow, companies need capital. What should growing companies be thinking about during volatile financial markets? And what kind of alternative funding sources are available? In this episode of Privately Speaking with KPMG, audit partner Erica Whitmore and Mike Rudolph, Managing Director, KPMG Corporate Finance, dive further into these questions. Today, uh, we have Mike Rudolph, who's a managing director in our corporate finance group here at KPMG. So, Mike, if you could give us a little bit of your background, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here, and I think our listeners are going to get some good information that's going to help him, uh, help them Excuse me, kind of see what's around the corner of the next six months. Yeah, no, awesome. Uh, absolutely happy to be on. Uh, again, Mike Rudolph, I'm a managing director within KPMG's uh, corporate finance practice, and, and, and effectively what that is, and we always like to say it's KPMG's best-kept secret because um, obviously everyone knows about our audit tax and advisory, but, but we are a FINRA-licensed uh, middle market investment bank. So unlike, you know, maybe some of our larger audits that, that most people kind of understand with our kind of Fortune 500 businesses, we, we really, within corporate finance, focuses, focus on, call it the 30 to three to $400 million of enterprise value business. So depending on the sector, that could be um, kind of EBITDA positive, call it single digit up to 30, 40 of EBITDA. Obviously, if it's uh, a tech deal, I mean, sometimes that's, that's uh, not profitable. It, it could still be in that two, three, 400 million range on the enterprise value. But we, um, there's about 100 professionals in the U.S., call it 20 plus managing directors and the vast majority of what we do is kind of sell side M&A but as as luck would have it um, my background in lending uh, and I that, well my background in lending and I basically run our capital advisory practice so when companies need to raise capital they're not looking to sell and frankly they don't necessarily know what their debt options are that's kind of when I come into play um, you know, the first part of my career, I, I was a lender. I was at uh, GE and Terrace Capital for many years. I was also a capital source, so really have a good kind of understanding of providing debt loans to privately held businesses. That's kind of the size range um, I kind of I just mentioned. And now I'm more on the advisory side, so basically helping companies kind of think through all their options. And then fortunately for me, a lot of times I'm going to kind of colleagues or, or prior colleagues or friends of mine that I've known for 20 plus years when we're kind of soliciting kind of terms from them. Perfect. Mike, thank you for that background. I think that that lays the foundation really well with, with you know, a couple of topics that we're going to cover today, which includes, you know, private, you know, where, where are private companies getting their money from these days? You know, what is your perspective on the M&A market and then liquidity in general? So, so we will we'll kick it off with one of my favorite topics. Um, anyone who's listened to more than a few podcasts probably knows I get pretty excited about IPOs, although not right now. <laughs> so, um, you know, given the slowing IPO market, you know, M&A trends uh, seems to be trending down, excuse me, right now. Um, you know, I've got some venture capital friends that have shared that, you know, they've significantly dialed back, you know, going to look for deals and they've asked some of their portfolio companies, depending on what industry they're in, you know, to kind of tighten up spending, et cetera. Um, heard consistent themes from PE firms. Kind of what's your perspective on where private companies are getting their money from these days? Yeah, no, certainly um, a relevant question. And, and, and you're right. I mean, venture capital funds, they, um, 
they effectively put money into kind of speculative businesses, right? So, so I think given kind of all the potential headwinds and, and just kind of looming and, and higher pricing and lower leverage, I, I think venture capital groups are, are definitely, you know, um, pulling back a little bit. And, you know, obviously I think the, uh, kind of the flavor of the last couple of years were SPACs and everyone wanted to be a SPAC. And I think that kept a lot of people very busy, but, but I, I think kind of anything in the public markets is, is a little bit, um, you know, more difficult these days, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think when you look at who is funding deals these days, I mean, look, it's, it's the same groups that have been funding it, um, you know, since, since I've been working, it's really private equity firms and capital providers um, I think private equity funds are sitting on, I think it's like almost north of a trillion of dry powder, which effectively is funds raised, but money not put to use. So certainly right. LPs want that money put to, put to use. Um, so private equity f- funds are still really trying to put money in, in, into different privately held deals. And obviously we saw 2021 was kind of through the roof on the M&A side. And certainly kind of capital providers have to, leverage up and help fund those deals. And, you know, you look at kind of the different types of capital providers. I mean, certainly everyone knows kind of banks, kind of the big banks, um, kind of the big Wall Street banks, and then kind of the, the local regional banks, you know, down the street. But but I think really where, frankly, where my group comes into play, there's probably hundreds of not thousands of different types of funds out there that are providing um, kind of senior debt, they're providing junior debt, they're looking at minority equity deals, and there's a lot of different kind of funding mechanisms from from just private funds, from CLOs, BDCs. So there's, similar to the private equity world, there's a lot of money that debt providers need to put into in, in deals, um, and again, all their investors want to return, but it's just becoming more difficult with kind of the uh, the not only leverage and pricing issues, but also just kind of the conservative nature of, of capital providers because of all these kind of perceived um, headwinds. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And, and I do see some of our, you know, our audit clients going through some of those situations. So we'll come back to liquidity. So in terms of um, M&A activity, uh, KPMG, specifically Carol Stryker, put out an, an article or a white paper in June of 2022 called Appetite for M&A Remains Strong Despite Economic Headwinds. And in, in this um, white paper, you know, kind of shows the trend, right, in terms of, of value and, and deal volume over the last couple of years. And, you know, obviously 2021 was strong. Even second half of 20 was very strong. First half obviously was not. Um, but those deals have come down, you know, in terms of looking forward to the second half, um, just wanted to get your perspective on, you know, kind of what you're seeing and in terms of both value as well as number of deals. Um, I think it's just a really interesting topic, right? And and we just saw one of the major banks um, release earnings and, you know, they've they've raised their loss reserves and, and they've lowered their projected earnings for the rest of the year. So just a lot happening here, even in the first couple of weeks of July. Would just love to hear your thoughts. Sure, no, absolutely, and and yes, as you referenced, I mean, 2021 was M&A activity was was kind of through the roof, and and likewise, so was kind of the debt market supporting those those deals. And yeah, I think the last six months we've definitely seen a slowdown. Um, I mean, I mean, we're very much uh, industry driven by our sector bankers, and 
I think for the most part, everyone's still having a pretty good year, but I, I know we are starting to see a few deals almost kind of being put on hold just because, you know, maybe they are in kind of a more of a discretionary kind of goods environment or residential construction or, or more kind of heavily retail. So certainly deals have probably, um, you know, quote, died because of that sector and kind of some of the headwinds that, that I think investors are looking at. But, you know, we, we haven't, we've definitely experienced some of that, but I think, you know, one, one kind of good example is one of our colleagues uh, in market with a, you know, I'd call it kind of an outdoor recreational spend type business that was, you know, single digit EBITDA 2019, all of us spending a lot more time at home and, and, you know, kind of with, with time on our hands, I mean, the company literally, um, I think it pretty much quadrupled EBITDA over the next kind of couple of years. And in market right now versus if, it's, if this deal was in market six months ago, it probably would have closed, um, you know, relatively, you know, smoothly. But right now, both private equity funds are, are and kind of strategic buyers are looking at this and saying, okay, I'll still buy this company for eight times, let's say, but eight times what? Is it going to be the single-digit EBITDA from 2019? Is it going to be the nearly 30 of EBITDA, you know, as of now? Because, sure. you know, who knows who knows what's going to happen and what this company is going to look like, um, you know, over the next couple couple years. So, so I think buyers are kind of struggling and putting pencils down. But for that deal in particular, the owners, they, they still want um, – they don't want to sell and, and go to the beach. They they wanted to basically sell and obviously take out liquidity and in, in, in a good market, but they really wanted to put money back into the business and continue to grow. So instead of selling, they're contemplating, you know, um, going to different debt providers that, you know, maybe could leverage up. Um, again, we'd have to decide what that EBITDA looks like, but maybe provide two times leverage on on that business so they could, use that money to um, maybe buy off some other shareholders that, that do want to kind of retire or they could use that money to grow. So I think, you know, that's an example where, um, you know, a, a credit fund can maybe get very reasonable leverage on a really good business that they maybe wouldn't have gotten, you know, a year or two ago, but given the market conditions, um, you know, it's a really good opportunity for them. And, and actually, I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to, reference kind of another deal that we closed um, about a year ago. It was in the, uh, the DSO dental space, and we were basically helping provide debt capital for kind of a family office that was buying a, um, a company in the dental space, sub-10 of EBITDA, and, you know, the deal was kind of north of 10 times um, overall valuation. So when you look at that, 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 that 10 times check, we ended up raising close to five times leverage and almost for all of our capital raises, there's kind of two avenues that we'd, we'd approach. So we'd look at credit funds that would do, you know, what's known as a unitron. So that credit fund would fund that full five times. And, you know, it's typically priced, call it hot, you know, high single digit um, pricing, or you could look at kind of a, a senior med structure where you have that traditional bank who typically would never go much higher than two or two and a half times leverage especially on a sub-10 of EBITDA business. And then the rest of it would be uh, filled by a mezzanine or junior capital provider. But, it, but it's kind of interesting because if you look at that deal, again, let's just say it was five times leverage, banks were a little bit more conservative, so they only wanted to do, call it two times leverage. So that means three times leverage would have to be for a junior capital fund. And if you look at the pricing of those two types of groups, 
you know, the bank is call it five, six percent, but that MES group could be, you know, call it 14, 15 percent. Well, well, that basically just made the MES provider like not they're not going to win the deal because it's just going to be way too expensive since you literally have almost three times or three turns priced at 15%. Whereas, you know, we were getting credit fund bids in that seven, eight, 9% range. But, but you look at it now with leverage level decreasing, and I know we'll talk about pricing in a bit, but pricing is, you know, definitely increasing as well. You know, now that same deal is probably only going to get four times leverage and it really is going to benefit, I think, the junior capital mezzanine provider because now they only need to go about a turn deep or a turn and a half deep versus, you know, almost three times. So, so I think obviously there's winners and losers kind of in anything that happens in the markets, but I, but I do think, uh, you know, junior capital providers, you know, sh- should probably get some good opportunities over the next couple of years. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that's really helpful to kind of understand your view on, on how the things work. And I always love stories. Um, I just think they're they're great. So in terms of liquidity, we, we mentioned it at the beginning, and there's a lot of different views on kind of where things are at. But but how should companies be thinking about uh, liquidity today? I think um, what I would say is, uh, and we kind of reference that that there is still strong liquidity. You know, different funds trying to put money to to use. I just think it's really knowing where to go to and knowing what type of fund to, to, to look at, right? So, and what I mean by that is, you know, certainly um, I think if you look at the ways, and, and I guess there's a few variables to look at, you know, one is what are the use of funds and what are the use of, of that liquidity? I think that's getting really scrutinized lately. Yes, so what like. I mean by that is, yeah, I mean, like, like I think lenders in general are taking a really kind of a harder stance and kind of non-accreative uses of, of capital and, you know, the, the main one is kind of a dividend recap, right? Like three, two years ago or a year ago, you probably could leverage up a 10 million EBITDA business by three times. And that money could, you know, in theory, go straight into the owner's pocket, you know, just for kind of um, liquidity diversification purposes. And the lender would have been okay with that. But, but now I think the viewpoint is they want to either, you know, have that money go into like an acquisition, which would be a creative but we mentioned M&A is obviously slowing. So it's really kind of refinances, you know, buying out maybe older shareholders that, that want out. But I think lenders really want that capital being used to stay in the business and helping that business grow, right? So I, so I think the use of funds is being scrutinized. Um, I think we referenced a little bit. Uh, if you're in a different sector uh, or, or more of a volatile sector, again, kind of consumer discretionary spending, residential construction, um, kind of retail, um, you can still get deals done, but it's going to be at, at, a, at a much lower kind of leverage and, and potentially higher pricing. And, you know, when we talk about leverage, it's, it's interesting the the types of lenders we talk talk to and, and businesses that we work with, I, I feel like there's kind of a, a threshold that if you're, north of 10 of the EBITDA and, you know, the closer you get to 20 of the EBITDA, you're going to definitely get higher leverage in general and lower pricing. But if you look at the type of leverage that that type of company could have gotten, call it a year ago, it's probably only reduced about a maybe a quarter turn or so. So instead of, you know, call it four and a half to five times leverage, you know, they're, they're probably getting, um, you know, four and a quarter to 475. Whereas if you're below 10 of EBITDA, I, I just think lenders are, are much more 
um, critical and size kind of matters, I think, with uh, capital providers. So in that case, you could be looking at almost like a three-quarter turn decrease in, in leverage. And then, of course, on the pricing side, you know, well, first of all, there's the whole kind of uh, LIBOR to SOFR um, kind of changeover. So LIBOR is effectively kind of going away and the secured overnight financing rate has really kind of come into play. Um, but that rate or that spread, I should say, has increased so much over the last even couple months. Um, you know, probably about a year ago, I mean, LIBOR was effectively like 30 basis points. I, I just looked, again, LIBOR's not used that much, but I think LIBOR as of today was like almost 2%. And SOFR's kind of the same thing, right? I mean, SOFR, I think the 30-day SOFR currently is about um, one and a half or, you know, 150 basis points, whereas I think, you know, earlier in the year, that was probably, you know, 50 basis points. Um, and that that that's real you know, interest expense going out the door if, if you're a, a, a lent or a, a capital, pro or I'm sorry, if you're a business and, you know, you almost have to pay another 100, 150 basis points on that deal that you have in market or the deal that you have on your balance sheet because certainly they're floating rates, right? They're not fixed rates. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I think between, you know, sectors, use of funds, leverage and pricing, um, lenders are, are definitely being a little bit more critical kind of just in general in their underwriting. No, I, that's, that, I've definitely seen that um, with the companies that I serve as well. Underwriting is, is a different story than it was uh, nine months ago. <laughs> that, yeah, that's... no, 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 exactly. And actually, um, Erica, one thing I just want to mention, I just almost forgot. So just because I, I, I remember and um, old enough to remember that back in kind of the 05, 06, 07 um, timeframe, and I, I did a little research, and middle market loan volume from 05 to 07 for companies that had 50 of EBITDA or less. I mean, literally, the, the, the loan volume those years were 35 billion, 34 billion, and 28 billion. Um, in 2021, which we talk about, you know, being an amazing kind of debt market, it was not even eight billion. So, so back in that time, um, again, massively high middle market loan volume. The the prime rate went from eight and a quarter in '06, and it dropped all the way to three and a quarter in, in 2008. Now, obviously, we all know about the Great Recession and Bear Stearns, subprime auto. So, so certainly, I think the Fed try to do everything they can by reducing um, kind of the prime rate during current those kind of tough times. But if you look just in 06 and 07, again, when rates were at 8%, north of 8%, I mean, 34 billion of, of, of loan volume is, you know, kind of unheard of. So, so I guess the point of that is, you know, I think a lot of folks are looking like, oh, you know, and I hear it a lot from clients, like, oh my God, rates are going up, rates are going up. You know, things are going to get really bad because of that. I mean, look, if things do get really bad, it's, you know, pricing will play a very small um, role in that. It, it's really kind of the whole inflation and, you know, kind of possible recession. You know, who knows if there's kind of more lockdowns or, or what have you with, with the virus. But but just based on history, it's, it's not going to get bad just because prices, or I'm sorry, um, just because pricing is going up as, as we kind of saw in that kind of 06, 07 timeframe. No, I think that's really Really interesting. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. So thank you again for, for joining us today. Any final thoughts you, you would like to leave our listeners with? Um, just kind of, we touched on a lot of things, right? We touched on 
the M&A market. We touched on, you know, sources of capital, where where companies can get money from, liquidity. Uh, what are your parting thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, well, I guess I'm always optimistic and, and glass is always half full. And I, I think you have heard, at least on the restructuring side, that things are going to get really busy. And, and I know, you know, obviously, even within KPMG, we have a lot of folks that, that are probably busy on the restructuring side. But I guess I would say, and, and we've looked at a few deals where, I mean, look, maybe you're not set up anymore to be a bank deal and priced at, you know, three, four percent. Um, you know, things have gotten, uh, you know, rougher, maybe even days a little bit less than the asset values went away. But but I would say there there is a huge universe of kind of capital providers that are frankly more aggressive. And yeah, they're going to be more expensive. But I, but I think, you know, we will see restructuring pick up, you know, most definitely. But I, I feel like we've been saying that for, you know, four, five, six years, and we haven't necessarily, you know, seen it. But I think outside of the restructuring, there's definitely a lot of different types of capital providers that, that you know, frankly, could be, um, could be an avenue of, of, of use for, for, uh, for companies that maybe they never even really thought that this type of capital even existed. Perfect. Well, Mike, like I said, thank you again for your time this morning. I think I think it's been really helpful. I know it's been helpful for me. Um, so thank you again, and, and we hope to have you on again soon. Awesome. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, the time. I enjoyed doing it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Privately Speaking with KPMG. And be sure to subscribe to this series to be notified of new episodes.